Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Central Seminary Podcast. I'm excited about this episode because this is our first true series. At least that's what we're planning for. We've had part one and part two of a couple, but uh, this one might be a little bit more than that, and we're excited about that. As we continue here, I just want to give you the heads up that we will be taking a brief break around Christmas We're not going to release an episode the week between Christmas and New Year's, so beware of that. Before we give our topic, why don't we just introduce our guests? Since there's four of us here, you might get the voices confused. So I'm going to have you each go around and state your name and your function here at the seminary, and uh, hopefully that will get us connect connect a voice with a name (laughs) and people won't get confused. So why don't we go ahead, Matt, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I'm Matt Schrader. I have a couple responsibilities here. I am the recruiter and work in the admissions office, but I also teach church history. My name is Brett Williams. I serve as the provost, uh, which is a term that means nothing yet everything. <laughs> so I often tell people there's nothing I won't or have not done at Central Seminary. I um, also teach a little bit in the systematic um, so, yeah. I'm Kevin Bowder. I'm systematic theology professor here at Central Seminary. And what I want to know is, why are we still calling this the Central Seminary Podcast? Why don't we have a real name for it? A real, do, you, do you really want to get into that discussion? I, I, yeah. That is the real name. Matter of fact, that, we yeah. had a, what, two-hour-long yeah. meeting, actually, with our president. And we had a whiteboard, we and that's, we were making a list. So, and so this is like a mandate, huh? This is the best we could come okay. up with. I mean, here yeah. we we're bearded <laughs> theologians. How about that one? So there what we go. didn't want, we didn't really want an anarthrous Central Seminary podcast. So this is the Central the, Seminary yeah. podcast. Okay. You understand that? You know. So no Jehovah's Witnesses will get a hold of this and play fast <laughs> and loose. If it weren't for me, we could even call it like bearded and bald. <laughs> There, and true. from Colorado. <laughs> oh, bearded, bald, and cut. That one I could there fit it is. into. Yeah. There it is. There Other go. than Jared, we've all lived in the Mile High State. So we're a little bit closer to God. Let's move on. <laughs> uh, so for, for our reading part, we usually like to ask what you're reading. And Kevin demanded, no, Kevin suggested that why don't we each pick up a book on the Trinity that we haven't read, because that's going to be our topic, and... Uh, plan on reading that over the course of our discussions here. So we're going to go around the table and talk about which book we're reading. Mine is entitled "The Quest for the Trinity: The Doctrine of God in Scripture in, in Scripture History and Modernity" by Stephen R. Holmes. I am reading through uh, the Holy Trinity by Robert Latham. Uh, this is actually a revised, expanded. Edition. He had one that came out almost 20 years ago, but this one I think came out 2019. 
And uh, it's a fairly systematic presentation of the Trinity. Uh, the subtitle is In Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship. So it is approaching this subject from multiple angles. Um, that one sounds like a good one, actually. i got to put that in my to-do list. It's, it's a good um, book. It's a very good book. Yeah, I've never done that. Uh, so the one that I chose is called In Our Sense or Image, uh, which is um, by a theologian out of Yale. His name is Miroslav Volf. Um, he looks uh, more so at the Eastern as a viewpoint, the Orthodox sense uh, or viewpoint um, of how they view the church as almost a good metaphor than for the Trinity. Um, how sacramentalism developed in the East, etc. So I'm excited to delve into that one. And in my case, about, uh, was it a year ago maybe, Alvin Plantinga came out with a new book on the Trinity. Alvin Plantinga is a highly respected philosopher and theologian in the Reformed tradition. And I've just been, it's, it's a long book, so you've got to set a block of time aside to really deal with the thing. Probably, I don't know, 700 pages, something like that. And I've been looking for an excuse to just sort of move other reading off to the side and move planting a front and center. And uh, I'm, I'm just, that's what I'm going to be doing over the next little while that we're talking Trinity. Okay, great. Our topic is the Trinity, and I, I think this started off as maybe we wanted to handle a, a subset of the discussion. We wanted to talk about eternal functional subordination, and as we got into that, we realized that, well, you can't talk about that without talking about a whole bunch of other stuff. So Kevin said, why don't we just do a series on the Trinity? So that's what we're going to do, and our, our goal is to take maybe three or four segments or three or four podcast episodes to kind of introduce some of the key issues relating to biblical Trinitarianism, and then maybe over the course of next months, we'll kind of add an episode here or there talking about some various things, maybe history of the Trinity or Baptist uh, approach to Trinitarianism, something like that. So the one we're going to talk about today is an introduction to basic Trinitarianism. And we're going to start off by just kind of talking about that term. So someone want to want to lead us off with that yeah, term? The, you know, the interesting thing is you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or somebody like that. One of the first things they're going to say is, well, the term Trinity isn't even in the Bible. As, as if all of our th theological terms have to be in the Bible. So let me, let me throw this over to Matt. Matt, how do we respond when somebody says that word isn't in the Bible? We respond by saying many, as you say, many of words of our theology are not specifically in the Bible, but the ideas are clearly there. And theological debates through history have been about how we interpret the words of Scripture. And so we use these theological terms as a way to, sh to demarcate what interpretation of Scripture we are using. And so Trinity is a foundational one of that and has spawned a lot of further discussions, whether it is person, uh, generation, many, many other things. A, a lot of words that aren't directly in the Bible. Correct. And, and yet we're forced into using those terms to describe biblical concepts, I think largely because... This, this is one of those places where you, you, can, you can take the Bible a little out of balance in one place and, and end up in a deep heresy on this side, but if you take it a little out of balance on, in, in another place, you end up in a deep heresy on that side. So you've got to take it all together. You've got to put it together. 
And as we put it together, we use extra biblical terms to describe how we think it fits. Oh, yes. And I think there are other aspects of that as well. Just because a word doesn't appear, say, in the scripture, that doesn't mean the idea then shouldn't, right? So the word, even let's say Trinitas, really doesn't appear even in Christendom for about 150 years after about, um, let's say, the, uh, uh, the time of Christ or even the close of the canon. So that's a second, third century word that is trying to articulate and describe the biblical sense or idea. And it's fair to say that you don't have a fully articulated doctrine of the Trinity Mm -hmm. until you get to the Constantinopolitan version of the Nicene Creed. So you're you're well into the fourth century. Yes. By the Mm -hmm. time everything's been worked out and fit together. Yeah. So I think, I believe it was Ignatius who's the first to use actually the tridic, if you will, language, right? Or triadic, I should say, this whole idea. He was trying to understand it, I believe, as it relates to the days of creation. And I think Theophilus of Antioch was was one of the, well, who had the idea that, okay, the three days then, um, there's the three first days in creation represented in some strange and very analytical sense, the three ideas of God. Again, this very loose language, as Kevin said, you really didn't get full Trinitarianism for quite some time. And that's right. And, and even... The language of three persons, one substance, really gets introduced in the third century with Tertullian, but his is not developed, and it has to be developed more. He uses that word trinitas, as you mentioned, but there's a long way from what Tertullian is saying in the early third century to Constantinople in 389. And it's worth noting that when Tertullian talks about person, uses the word persona, Mm -hmm. he's, he's taking a word actually out of Roman legal thought. It, it isn't a psychological term at all mm-hmm. for Tertullian. Now, when, one, one of the problems we face, particularly when you get into something like the social trinity, which is one of the modern errors, is that when we hear the word person, we're thinking in psychological terms. A person is a center of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's importing a very modern idea into the word person. That's not what the pers- word person means in the doctrine of the trinity. So it, it takes time in the early church to tease out some of these notions. Right. And we, we hope to get into that eventually. What is a person? What do we mean by personhood? But going back to the Trinidar- Trinity discussion, uh, what would you say to someone who says, oh, okay, yeah, it's, it's, you know, the terms there, it's not in the Bible. Um, I'm not denying that it's not a good word, but I want to find something that's in the Bible. Well, what you can find in the Bible, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, we talk about it as one doctrine, but it's actually a collection of smaller doctrines, mm-hmm. and each of those smaller doctrines, I think, is taught explicitly uh, in the Bible. You've got the unity of God, you've got the deity of the Father, the deity of the Son, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and then the, the, the notion that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinguishable from each other. They're not just the same person. Uh, and, and maybe we ought to talk about those components now in, in terms of what we mean by those and maybe even what their biblical justification is. Sure. Everybody's nodding around the, the table here, but nobody can yes. hear those nods on, on the uh, podcast. Well, and I think even the idea, right, as you were saying, Kevin, 
how do you articulate when Scripture defines individuals? And again, I'm using individual as in some sort in a modern sense. However, when Scripture refers to, say, you know, John 6 or even, even John 14 and 15 specifically, when you have Jesus who's clearly a, saying and articulating some sort of a difference then between himself and the Father— Right, or at his baptism, when the voice from heaven comes down, right? Clearly, that's not Jesus's voice. However, when you have other ideas that when he says, the Father and I are one, simply the idea has to be that, how do we reconcile that? How do we justify that? How do we interpret Scripture as Scripture should be interpreted while staying faithful and true? And it's, it's not a solution just to say, I don't take your passage because I've got this other passage that looks like it says something different. We believe in the unity of the Bible. Mm -hmm. We believe that it all represents the mind of God. God never contradicts himself. So part of what drives us as we put together a doctrine of the Trinity is this idea that somehow it all has to fit together coherently. And I'm curious, um, just to you guys, certainly do you think that the doctrine of the Trinity is the first doctrine or holistic, let's say, doctrine of Christianity um, that attempted to do that very thing, that took the Old Testament and the New Testament and attempted some sort of a systematization. Actually, one of the things that Latham points out, I I don't know if you've hit this yet, uh, Matt, in your your reading, but Latham points out that 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 struggle is actually going on in the text of the New Testament itself. Because here we've got very clear teaching in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Mm-hmm. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Absolute statement of the unity of God. And yet, in the New Testament, here is Jesus who unquestionably is presenting himself as God. And, and he's not the Father. He talks about the Father. He talks to the Father. He's not the Father. So how can we have a Father who is God and a Son who is God, but we've still only got one God? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah, Latham does get into that. And then he says that's a key reason why John's gospel, being written later, gets much more into the relation of the Son to the Father and how that can be true. And Latham and some other uh, Trinitarian authors who are writing on the doctrine like to point out and point to Deuteronomy 6 and say the monotheism, unity of God underpinning is mm. very well understood. It's, it is uh, Old Testament um, through and through. Everyone takes that. It, it, the question was, what do you do with the Incarnation? Mm-hmm. And then later on, what do you do with Pentecost? That... Mm-hmm. There is something unique in the incarnation. This is God, and John's gospel is trying to figure that out. And mm-hmm. then, and then after Pentecost, the church is saying something else has happened. We have to try to work through this, and that's some of the development uh, of adding to this monotheism. You also have the Son and the Spirit, and and how do you put that together? So then, I'm thinking, would it be more accurate to say that the doctrine of the Trinity? really is a continuation of what's already going on within Scripture. Uh, Certainly, I should say, with the progress of Revelation. As Revelation evolves, or progresses, I should say, then how do you correlate and understand, right? As Kevin said, that whole Shema, right? As Matt said, that idea that, okay, these things happen, and it's clear the biblical authors understand Jesus as a divine being, 
or then you add Pentecost. And so it seems the development of the Trinitarian language is a continuation of what's already happening within Scripture. And I think, I I don't want to go out too far on a limb here, but I think it's possible to say you've got tantalizing suggestions, even in the Old Testament. Uh, And I know there will be theologians who disagree about this, but you've got... uh, you know, Elohim being a plural, you, you've got the uh, creation language, let us make man in our image. Uh, you have a couple of references in Isaiah that, that seem to make much of a father and a son or a father and a God, God the Father and the Messiah and, and the Spirit. Uh, you, you have all of the um, angel of the Lord passages where the angel of the Lord shows up and on the one hand he's sent by Jehovah he speaks for Jehovah on the other hand he is Jehovah uh, you know there are tantalizing hints even yeah. in the Old Testament itself I don't think you get to a doctrine of the Trinity yes in the Old Testament yes. and certainly I think the church fathers recognize that I mean one of their favorite uh, it's Old Testament I'll say passages to refer back to is Genesis 18 that whole idea who are the three people that visit Abram right? Yeah, the three angels. That's exactly it. Okay, one appears to be worshipped, or at least divine in that sense. And so that that correlation, you said, Kevin, it starts very soon or very early in Scripture, and that's why the church fathers have to refer back to it. Right, and and there are many such passages. Psalm 110 is another big one, and you seem to have two divine characters speaking. And, of course, the the perhaps most debated one is Proverbs 8 (laughs) and, and what you do there with... Uh, wisdom, wisdom and, yeah. and so yeah. on. And that's obviously very debated. But yes, I, I think the idea of plurality and also unity in the Old Testament is implicit, at least, if well, not you, explicit. Unity is clearly stated. That's right. But it's clearly stated not against Trinitarianism, but against polytheism. Correct. You know, we serve one God, not a whole bunch of gods. And there's nothing in Trinitarianism that denies that. As Trinitarians, we insist there is one and only one true and living God. And at one, one of the errors that we have to guard against in the way that we articulate the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the error of tritheism. Mm-hmm. And I think there are times when, when some Christians almost think of God tritheistically. Uh, you can talk to God the Father, or you can talk to God the Son, or you can talk to God the Holy Spirit. Whichever one you're most comfortable with can be your God. Yeah. And that's not a really good way of looking at the Trinity. It's downright heretical, if I might add. But no, I think to his point, and I'll say simultaneously in the Old Testament, while you see that whole idea of singularity, right, that's obvious, monotheism, has to be seen throughout the Old Testament, you also see a correction with this whole idea of unity within some sort of plurality, whatever that is. Certain people go back to the term Elohim. I think that's a stretch. I think that's more of a title or anything. However, even some of the passages that we talked about really have this idea that, well, God is one. He's not a monad, Right? So this whole monadism, not modalism, that's different. Monadism is the sense that it's one thing, right? Hence the language of, let's say, Trinitarian has to get away from that while, let's say, taking into accord the language of the Old Testament. Even here, we struggle with language. 
Because we actually do believe that God is one thing. Yes, except not one one, modad, exactly. Yeah, that one thing is three persons. That's exactly it, which gets to the point of how language has to develop. It has to evolve. Just because something isn't, say, maybe in Scripture necessarily verbatim doesn't mean it's unnecessary to describe said things in Scripture. And this is one of the reasons that the doctrine of the Trinity took some centuries to develop. It took time to develop and clarify the the language to say exactly what they meant by things. Mm -hmm. So terminology is important. It might be. I, uh, I had a professor, a theology professor in Bible college who used to give these exams in systematic theology class, and they were true and false or multiple choice, and three of the answers, if you chose it, you were basically heretical, and one was an orthodox answer, and he, <laughs> he just tried to confuse us. So some of us probably had some heretical answers because we weren't paying attention to the terminology and descriptions that he gave. Well, and there's a lot of that that goes on in churches as well. Um, take, take the average communion service. Mm-hmm. And, and it's time to, you know, we're going to distribute the cup. And um, you ask somebody to pray before the distribution of the cup, probably a deacon, and the deacon gets up and says, Father, we thank you for shedding your blood for us on the cross. Yeah. That's a heretical statement. It's a deeply heretical statement. The denial of the gospel is implicit in that statement. And, and yet, the person who says that doesn't mean to deny the gospel. They're just not clear on what they're thinking and how that connects with precise speech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have, have to be careful and thoughtful in, in how we address the Trinity or how we describe it. And I remember you talking about that in theology class, and I, I have the voice of Kevin Bowder in my head every time I go to pray, and I've caught myself... Trying, you know, thinking I'd, something I'd like that. I prefer that you had the voice of the Holy Spirit <laughs> okay. in your head. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Okay. Point is, we we, we got to think. It's and and Scripture, even beyond the Trinity discussion, Scripture is very clear about how we enter into prayer and uh, vain repetitions, being mindful about what we're doing, and we can all fall into that pitfall. Yes, I'm curious now, and I guess I want to hear from everyone, including Jared. How were you raised, or? How were you maybe taught the Trinity as a child? I'll start because I'm the oldest. And, and this is something that I think has changed some over the years. When I was a very small child, I can remember being somewhat confused uh, be, because there were times that questions would come up in Sunday school class, and I knew that Jesus was God. Uh, and the correct answer to the question was supposed to be God. But if I said Jesus, then that was the wrong answer. And I had a tough time understanding why that was the wrong answer. Eventually, I figured out that there's only one God, but the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And I don't know that my understanding of the Trinity advanced much beyond that, really most of the way through Bible college. Uh, in, In those days, I think... Most of us in conservative Christianity simply assumed a doctrine of the Trinity, and it was a pretty basic, pretty rudimentary doctrine of the Trinity. I can still remember 
I w- and, and by the way, when I got to seminary, that picture began to change. But I can still remember when I got into doctoral studies, this would be in the early 90s, sitting in a class at Dallas Seminary and the professor just shaking his head and saying, we evangelicals are not serious Trinitarian theologians. Well, that was the early 90s. I think that situation is almost reversed today. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear from the rest of you. Yeah, I think my early recollections are probably not very dissimilar to yours, Kevin, where I can remember thinking Trinity as one God, three persons. I couldn't have told you what persons meant, mm. um, but I don't know it at a young age if, if many really do. It's been... Or a, even a much older age. A much older age, right. It's still difficult, right? But... Um, and maybe that's part of the whole language of talking of Trinity. There are mm-hmm. limits on what our language can and can't say about God and himself. But as I got older, um, I probably had a very similar development where through uh, into Bible college, uh, my Bible college theology professor is a, a central grad who did a good job teaching us these things. I think we shared a similar uh, seminary professor who taught us theology and we, we did get deeper into these. I, I don't know that I was very aware of some of the debates going on and some of the developments that like Stephen Holmes book will talk about and how the word person did change in modernity. But um, as I got into my doctoral work, I started in 2014 and it was the it was 2016 that the EFS debate blew up. And all of a sudden, we were all trying to desperately finish the reading we had to do for class classes and getting into dissertation. And then you wanted to read as much Trinitarian stuff as you could just to be up to speed. And everyone got a quick education. And, and I realized I, I had a solid um, teaching uh, of Trinitarianism, but some of the deeper doctrines or related doctrines such as eternal generation, uh, simplicity, um, inseparable operations from Augustine and so on. Mm -hmm. I I probably hadn't been taught those, but these debates forced me to get up to speed with some of that. So uh, I do think that the Trinitarian debates going on are going on at a a fairly deep level within Trinitarian uh, doctrinal development and, and terminologies being used. Loop loop back just a moment. Let's give credit where credit is due, Matt. You mentioned a theology professor that we both had. That theology professor was Myron Houghton. Uh, Myron was a remarkable guy. He went to more schools and had more degrees, I think, than any other single individual I've ever met. Um, He was... Actually, I didn't have him, as a, as a theology professor, didn't have him for theology proper, which is where you would normally talk about Trinitarianism. I had him for Christology. And of course, when you're in Christology, you get into all of the Trinitarian heresies. Mm-hmm. And he was very careful to define what we meant, what we didn't mean by Trinity. He introduced all of the principal uh, Christological heresies, whether, whether they're about the relationship of Christ to the Father or whether they're about the relationship of the divine to the human within Christ. He walked us through all of the church councils. He introduced us to, to the four chief symbols, the, the four principal creeds. Uh, he really did a very thorough job at an introductory level. Now, yep. 
to be fair, you know, eternal subordination, uh, eternal subordination. That's not what I want to say. <laughs> I don't think he taught that. that no, no he definitely didn't teach that. Eternal sonship, uh, eternal generation, uh, spiration. Those, those are questions I don't think I got into until years after I graduated from seminary. Um, it, it would have been a foreign language even when I was in seminary. Absolutely. And I, I would echo tribute to Dr. Myron as well. He was uh, my theology. I had all my systematics with him. And we did the same thing. We, we got into the, um, the Trinitarian language, the fundamentals of it. And yes, he taught there's one God and three persons, but that's basic and correct, but incomplete. There are, there's further discussions to be had, and he took us as far as he appropriately could for the class. Yeah. One, so one, Matt, you mentioned, oh, I was just going to say, you mentioned that it blew up in 2016. So at the meeting of Evangelical Theological Society, I was there, and I remember there was a symposium that I believe Stephen Holmes was on. Certainly, uh, it was quite, I think, the debate with this whole idea. Um, um, it wasn't a new idea, right? This whole idea of maybe subordination within the Godhead itself, yet that seemed to be the meeting that that entered into the normal day-to-day debates, let's say, within evangelicalism. It was an interesting symposium. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. and it, the, the whole thing had been simmering for a while before then. You, you had Bruce Ware and others, uh, Wayne Grudem, writing about, and in fact, they were labeling it as eternal functional subordination, but you had um, people like Erickson yep. writing against it only, I, I would say writing against it for all the wrong reasons. And uh, fi- finally, I, I think it really focuses on the Westminster crowd that sort of blew the whistle and, and said, this, this is not a well-articulated doctrine. Right, because yeah, at, at that point it got, in, it got integrated with complementarian, egalitarian debates, and so it became much more... Uh, front and center and applicable immediately. And yeah, that's when it blew up in 2016. But you're, you're correct. It was, it's an old debate too. And you know, here we, we're, we're talking about debates and throwing around acronyms, EFS. And, and um, th- this isn't what we set out to do in this conversation. We, we intended to be more <laughs> basic. And uh, I, I guess I would say if, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, listen to the next one on the Trinity because we'll explain some of what we mean by some of that stuff. Yes, Matt, I, I was just thinking, I mean, as you were speaking about, and even Kevin yourself as it seems to, at least in evangelicalism, found its way through the debates of evangel complementarianism, I should say, egalitarianism. Uh, the whole idea of I find it interesting that that's the avenue that it had to come through, as opposed to maybe systematic theology, mm-hmm. right? So it almost took a response to say Ware and Grudem when they're writing on complementarianism, not some sort of let's say systematic or broad arching idea. I just find that interesting, that that's well, the avenue that it came into the psyche of evangelicals. You know, Paul says it's necessary that heresies should come. And, and I think this is why we end up with heresies. We don't take right doctrine seriously until somebody comes along and denies it. And even when we deny it, we don't take it seriously until their denial strikes us at the level where we live. And that's what forces us back to the text. And it's what, what makes us dig in and really ask, is this right? Is that right? How do we put this together? Where are the boundaries? And actually, that's, that's what happened in, in, the third, or in the fourth century as mm-hmm. well. That's, that's what triggered the whole debate mm-hmm. that led to the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
So well, Jared, I'll, I'm curious as to your background. Yeah, my, my background is pretty similar to what has already been stated. Uh, growing up, and I grew up in a conservative Baptist church, and I had an understanding of the Trinity as, as a doctrine, but the inner nuances, it, it was the extent of it was uh, you believe that the three persons are God, pretty much. And even maybe not even all that, it was, you know, you either from the Trinity or you don't. And what that what that even means wasn't always discussed. But if it was discussed, it was you believe that the three the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But it it I'm not saying modalism was taught, but it wasn't cautioned against. So you kind of got into some form of quasi modalism, and especially with the diagrams or the illustrations, you know, science school teachers used to use. And so that was kind of the upbringing. And when I got to Bible college, I, I got the terminology, persons and essence and things like that. But I think in my head, it was still unclear and fuzzy until I came to seminary. And I had Kevin talking about generation and procession, some of those terms that we're going to get to in a couple episodes, and thinking through, well, how do you distinguish the Son from the Spirit? Because if you can't distinguish them, you don't have a trinity. You have a abinity was what, what <laughs> Kevin's term was. I don't know if that came from you. or, But, uh, you know, and that was where I really had to think through and understand, okay, we have to have a way to distinguish these three. Otherwise, it is very easily turning into modalism and God just appears in this mode at this time. And that wasn't something I... I believed, but it was hard to distinguish and hard, hard, to, hard to say. Don't, don't go there because of of this. So I think that was where I got the terminology that kind of helped me to distinguish what does Trinitarian mean, what Trinitarianism mean, and then, like you said, Kevin, kind of it not just as one doctrine, but as a collection of doctrines, and maybe my mind goes to like an umbrella term for all these things that kind of go under it. That's where I really started to understand that. Yeah, it's interesting that you should mention um, th- this sort of unconscious semi-modalism th- mm. that happens in our churches, and I think that's accurate. But it's it's more than just on the part of the average church member. I mean, you think back, what's it been, 10 years ago now when James McDonald was doing his Elephant Room broadcasts mm-hmm. and invited, who was the guy he invited from T.D. Jakes? T.D. Jakes, T.D. Jakes. Um, and T.D. Jakes is out of a modalistic background, and there was an immediate backlash because modalism is a significant heresy. There was an immediate backlash um, against McDonald's using this guy, uh, and and not distinguishing that his you know that, that there was a version of Trinitarianism here that is not orthodox. Uh, as I recall, McDonald didn't take the criticism well on on that point. He accused his critics of being, I think his term was discernmentalists. Um, wow. Yeah. So, uh, a term. But the fact yes. is that... I would expect it like heresy hunter or something like that, but... Yeah, well, discernmentalist, <laughs> I think that kind of yes. gets you there. There it is. So, well, before you go, Brett, yeah. I just want to say, since we threw the term around a couple times, modalism, someone want to give us a good definition of that for those who might be listening who have never heard the term before? Sure. It basically, 
I'll just be very succinct here, is that God is one. However, he can appear or relate as three modes, as three different modes. I'll use myself as same example, right? Um, I'm a son. However, I'm also a husband and I'm a father. So one, let's say, person, one thing, if I can use that, one being who, certainly depending upon my relationships, then appears as three different maybe roles. So if you apply that to the Godhead, then you have God, who as he relates to Revelation, he sort of appears in a sense as the Son, etc., etc., so he can be, he can appear as the Father at mm-hmm. times, appear as the Son at other times, appear as the Spirit at other times. That's one. There, there are three ledges you can drop off when it comes to the the Trinity. That's one of the ledges you can drop off, and and over that edge is heresy. Yeah, uh, it's a very strong emphasis on God as one. Mm-hmm. God is a yeah. monad. Monarchianism is an like a harder way to say it. Yeah, but God is a monad who is designated different ways at different times, depending on what he's doing, is the idea. So think one thing, three roles. Mm -hmm. And there is another form of monarchianism that that drops off a different ledge. Uh, and, and, And that is called dynamic monarchianism, or sometimes it's called adoptionism, which is the idea that Jesus wasn't really God. He was a very good man, who was adopted by God as son. Um, and um, dynamic monarchianism or adoptionism is sort of closely allied with what is sometimes called Arianism, which is simply the flat denial that Jesus Christ was genuinely God, capital G, at all. So those, those are two yeah. of the three ledges that you can drop off. Mm-hmm. And earlier on, we mentioned tritheism. That's the third ledge. Those are the three cliffs you've got to avoid. Yes, and maybe in a forthcoming episode or podcast, we can kind of get into more of the history or nitty-gritty. I'd be curious to see Matt or hear Matt on this, because certainly even that sort of adoptionism that was Paul of Samosata, who was the first you know, official adherent, well, one of his disciples um, actually discipled Arius. So you see, this is all interwoven historically. I'm not going to get into the details right now, but as Kevin said, you have these ledges where, where I believe well-meaning individuals saw Scripture and they tried to resolve the tension that lies within Scripture that we discussed earlier. Hence, they would fall off. They'd go too close and fall off, or maybe someone who was a subsequent individual would go, uh, say in reaction, they would go more towards another ledge. So almost like a pendulum idea of heresy. Incidentally, it appears that Muhammad, the founder of Islam, had bumped into his exposure to Christianity was a pretty weird version of tritheism. And so Islam is reacting strongly against tritheism. When you talk about the Trinity to any Muslim, a Muslim will assume you're talking about tritheism. Yes, And it's very hard to convince them otherwise because that error is actually in the Quran as well. Mm -hmm. Shall shall we assign our listeners some homework here? (laughs) Sure. Before the next uh, broadcast. I want to share my background though briefly if you don't mind. Because I want to give props. Yes, I do. I want to give props (laughs) to certain honor to um, whom honor is due. We'll put it that way. Um, I was raised inadvertently as a card-carrying modalist. Um, I'm not saying I was... Uh, necessarily taught that uh, 
through my church. Actually, the church that I was raised in uh, for most of my time was was actually pastored by a central grad. So no heretics uh, whatsoever. However, in Sunday school with the different you maybe metaphors or ideas, the eggs, the apple pie, the water, etc. I think our listeners are familiar with those. I was through and through a modalist in my mind. And even looking back on the prayers that I would pray had modalistic tendencies. It wasn't until my senior year of high school that I switched to another church and my teacher for Sunday school was Gordon Lewis, who was one of the theology guys at Denver Seminary. Um, he's a brilliant thinker and he was really, uh, um, he was a good author as well. Um, he authored several things that, that are still in circulation. Um, he was the first one, I think, officially that tried to get me to think more maybe critically about these things. Now, like all of you, I went through a little bit of university and then Bible college, not really further developing. I just believed, okay, one God and three persons, right? Um, so if you would look back, say, at my doctrinal statement when I was a Bible college student, it was very typical. I had a, a very robust, let's say, statement on dispensationalism a very robust statement on ecclesiology, a very robust statement on inerrancy, and I think my Trinitarian statement was a sentence long. So all that to say, as like you gentlemen, it wasn't until graduate studies and even postgraduate studies that I got into some of the further articulation, the language issues, the history of it, which I think is kind of sad in the sense of you had to get that level of uh, it's education in order really to start delving at things that, say, maybe three to four to five hundred years ago, that children would uh, learn in their catechism. They would learn this sort of language. Part of our problem is we didn't grow up with catechism. There you go, right there. Um, I, I wanted to be careful, but that's part of, I think, the danger of saying, well, we're just biblicists who don't need, let's say, creeds or even catechesis. Well, I push back and say, listen, everyone has catechisms. One, you may be Westminster or 1689 London Confession, and the other may be Awana. However, they're all catechisms. Homework. Ah, yes. Um, I would recommend, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't done this before, you need to go on the internet and Google Lutheran satire, St. Patrick's Bad Analogies of the Trinity. Oh, Patrick. <laughs> and you need to expose yourself because Lutheran satire will teach you more about the Trinitarian errors in five minutes than we're going to be able to teach you in five hours of podcasts. <laughs> that's a lot more simple homework than we typically assign. So that, that sounds good to me, too. Yeah. Well, we've come a long way in our discussion today. Why don't we kind of put things back together? Kevin, would you like to do some summary for us? We have one God. We have three persons. Each person is God. We haven't talked much about what that means, uh, and that we probably need to talk about that a little more. We're going to throw some fancy terms in here like autotheos. Uh, we've talked about the fact that the three persons aren't each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Uh, and, and that's sort of basic Trinitarianism right there. Um, We've talked about how we've come into our understanding of the Trinity. Um, oh, the, I know. The, the other thing I was going to say, 
you, you attributed, you know, we all grew up with a sort of a, a shallow, perfunctory understanding of the Trinity. That is partly because we weren't exposed to creeds and catechisms. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's also partly because the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't being challenged anywhere close at hand for us. Unless, unless we met a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or somebody like that, we hardly ever bumped into any religious person who was going to deny the Trinity. Even our Catholic friends and neighbors believed in the Trinity, and they believed it exactly the way that we do. Uh, so, so there wasn't cause to argue about it in those days. But that situation has changed. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and I would even say that uh, the expansion of uh, certain cults like Mormonism and then JWs, etc., um, it's forcing people to deal with the issue, not simply let's say maybe eternal uh, functional subordination, other things like that, but just the idea of globalism, right? Because now there's the internet. So when I was a kid, you had to go to a library, look up in an encyclopedia, or maybe a card uh, what we called catalog, which was archaic and actually involved a, a what. There it is. Yes, card catalog, right? You had to know either the Dewey Decimal System or Library of Congress, etc. Uh, whereas now on your phone, you can look up Luton satire right away, right? And get a good laugh. However, you're constantly interacting. I think especially social media. Um, I, I don't think it was an accident that right when social media hit things like Twitter and Facebook, this is in the 2010s, that a lot of these debates maybe got a little more aggressive. Exactly, well, c- right. Certainly it lends steam to them. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, the majority of the 2016 debate was on blogs. That's exactly. I, I mean, it. yes, it hit ETS. Yes, it hit other places. But if you wanted to do a lot of the background reading, it was go to this blog, then that one, then this one, then that one, and it, it was all very at hand. You could get to it quickly. And honestly, that's that's still what you do if you want to read about it. You there there are a couple of bloggers out there who have more or less aggregated yeah. all of the exchanges and and reading those old blog exchanges is really the best way to get into the topic. Which I think is par for the course when it comes to the development or evolution of doctrine, right? Um, Because theology in some ways is reactive, right? So you believe the Bible until you hear something that doesn't sound right. Then you have to get together and say, wait a sec, how is that wrong? Or is that something orthodox or Christian? And then you develop these things. It's exactly what happened in the first four or five centuries. Right, and that's that's how we got, you know, we, we talked about the whole idea of one God, three persons, and how you even get to that notion you know, in, in the New Testament, how is it that Jesus is being described as creator and judge, savior, he's being worshipped, being talked about as preexistent in John 8, things like this, and it, it makes you start asking, okay, well then how does that work? If God is one, how is Jesus God, but yet he's a man, and and you start teasing out some of those implications. Or on the other hand, going the other direction, if Jesus is truly God, then in John 17, how can he speak to his Father and call his Father the only true God? Exactly, yeah. You know, they, they, these, you've got to fit these things together somehow, and you can't, you can't do that just by, throwing one, by covering up one text with another. Mm-hmm. That's not there's, a good way to no use There's no such Bible. thing as a theology without a system. It simply doesn't exist, right? And so I believe the Trinitarianism is the necessary system. When it comes to this basic stuff, yes. yes. And, and really, Trinitarianism, I think, is really the most basic thing you have to understand in Christianity. It's not the first thing you learn. The first thing you learn is the way of salvation. 
But the way of salvation rests upon the Trinity. If you don't have a Trinity, you don't have a way of salvation. Mm-hmm. That's right. And Robert Latham in his book says that's how we initially um, experience the Trinity is in kind of our personal experience is to be regenerated by the Spirit through the work of Christ, giving glory to the Father. And it's a Trinitarian personal experience in salvation that we have to grow in our understanding of in our Christian walk. Yeah. So you could put it this way, say as a child who's coming to salvation, you do not need to know or even articulate the ins and outs of Trinitarianism, right? Just simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house, right? However, as you grow through and in that faith and love and belief, then to deny the Trinity in the future, that's a whole other sense or issue. If you're denying the Trinity, you're really denying the possibility of your own salvation. Now, does that mean you're unsaved? I don't think so necessarily because we're human beings and we have a massive capacity for inconsistency. So you can deny intellectually something that you're actually trusting. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, that doesn't make the denial justifiable. It doesn't make it good. And it doesn't even make it indifferent. If it's this important, it needs to be clarified. Good stuff. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up for this time. Next time, we hope to maybe touch a little bit more about what do we mean by Trinity, wrap up whatever we need to wrap up there, and hopefully we can talk about unity and what that looks like and uh, go from there. Uh, So thank you, men, for your time, and we'll see you next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. Next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. You, you can't say, well, I ignore your scripture because I've got this scripture that appears to say something else. And once we can be clear on what we mean, uh, we can actually move forward. You don't have to solve or resolve the tension. You can't just say it's irrelevant to the discussion, and you certainly can't say it's heretical. We need to have the same analogy that we're using. The analogy that comes to my mind is when you're changing lanes, put a turn signal. We look at certain heretics, especially historical, maybe Trinitarian heretics, as these nefarious individuals who are maybe in dark clothing. The problems with these heresies aren't just metaphysical speculations. It's salvation. God doesn't get his being from anywhere. God simply is. I was just thinking how embarrassing it would be to misunderstand or misquote Thomas Aquinas. Lucia referring to the unity of God and hypostasis to the threeness of God. There are two ways that we have to look at the Trinity. God's eternity is sheer existence. It's non-durative. What that means is it has no duration. When we talk Trinitarianism, we believe in a canonical unity. Imminent versus economic, ontological versus economic. Uh, what, what does that mean? A lot of our attributes of God that we have in our theology are negative statements about God. Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary Podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders for Christ-exalting biblical ministry. 
Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, centralseminary.edu.